Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Sacred Space Podcast. My name is Gina Stockton, and I am so excited that you chose to spend your time with me today. I have some very special guests. Annette and Bucky Oltmans are here. They have an incredible story. Annette is the founder of The Mend Project, and you'll hear more about that later. But this is an important episode. You know, Sacred Space is all about healthy relationship healthy intimacy with God, ourselves, and other people. And there's a lot of things in this world that are warring against healthy relationships. And something you don't really hear talked about much in church is domestic violence, physical and emotional abuse. What does it look like? How do we identify it? How do we come alongside those who are victims of it? And how do we help those that cause harm be healed and uh, grow out of their brokenness and their faulty thinking. So this is a really important episode. Um, I hope that you listen carefully, that you take notes, that you share it with friends, family, with your pastors and your leaders, because it's time for the church to not turn a blind eye, not blame victims or doubt them when they come forward, but learn how to have the empathy and compassion that Jesus has called us to have. Learn how to love people into a place of healing. So sit back, listen intently, and enjoy your time in the sacred space. So Annette and Bucky, welcome. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm just so honored to have you here, to have you share your story. And so thanks. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to be here. Annette, you have an organization called MEND. Mm -hmm. Could you just tell us a little bit about MEND really quick? Yeah. Uh, Give some context. Sure. The MEND Project, I, I founded the MEND Project coming out of my own story and basically we educate, equip, and restore all those impacted by abuse. And so we help victims of abuse, we provide resources and tools, we help those that are causing abuse by providing them information as well, providing clarity to both sides of the equation, um, but support for victims. And then we also train those we call anyone who comes in contact with a victim story a first responder. Mm, so good. we train all first responders, whether it's family, friend, pastors, therapists, is an emphasis of ours, and all those who come alongside victims of abuse. That's so powerful. I think there's a lot of people, obviously, that care about abuse and, and want to help and want to be there, but the how most of us don't know what to do, how what to say, what not to say, um, especially if you're in a position of leadership at an organization or a church or a pastor, you're a counselor, you're a high school leader. They're very ill-equipped. All of us are very ill-equipped when we encounter someone who is a victim of abuse. So that's really powerful. And I think part of it is probably even defining what abuse is. Mm. You know what? Because I think a lot of victims don't even recognize what abuse That's is. That's very true. Yeah. So could you unpack that a little bit? Sure. It's a great question that you ask about what domestic violence is. Because in my research, one of the things that I discovered that was so profound to me was that most victims 
therapists, and pastors, as well as the general public, have a hard time understanding what domestic violence is. Some believe it's solely physical violence. When the Center for Disease Control defines psychological aggression as the main component that defines abuse. So if we Hmm. break down psychological aggression, it falls into two main categories. We have overt emotional abuse, which are the things like name calling, Hmm. uh, yelling, loud put downs, restricting access to family and friends or financial control, these more overt forms. And so in those cases, victims are then more easily able to discern that something is not right with their partner. They may still be very confused and not understand it to be domestic violence, but at least they recognize that something is amiss with their partner. Yeah. Um, When emotional abuse is the covert kind, it's the hidden manipulative tactics that are hard to identify, Mm -hmm. they're hard for victims to describe, and therefore they're nearly impossible to confront. So covert emotional abuse causes profound confusion in victims, confounding them at the same time. It's the more subtle forms, and I could get into that if you want to. Yeah, so yeah, what are some signs of covert emotional abuse. Okay, so like, for example, lying is a big one. Mm -hmm. We all know that we hate to be lied to. It breaks trust in a relationship. Another covert behavior is blame shifting. You raise a reasonable Mm -hmm. complaint or concern, and in blaming, issues are always one-sided or the problem gets turned around on the victim. The responsibility for the disagreement is always laid at the victim's feet. Yeah. So... I can give you an example, like joking, for example. Usually when an abuser is joking, it's not a joke that everyone laughs at. It's a joke that's at the victim's expense. And so then if the victim says, that hurts my feelings, I don't want you to make fun of me in that way to put me down, the abuser might say something like, well, my family always did it that way and we turned out fine. Right. You're too sensitive. So now the victim is put down in the joke, but they're also blamed for being too sensitive as though they have a character flaw. So they get a double whammy. Yeah. And then um, minimization is another one. It's an abusive belittling of a victim's perspective. And the intention is to make what the victim values unimportant. Hmm. And therefore it kills her or his confidence creativity and individuality. They minimize the victim's perspective so that whatever the victim values or holds dear is considered less than or even Hmm. the victim's feelings saying things like, oh, well, like I just mentioned, you're too sensitive. It's minimizing their authentic emotions and feelings as though they don't count, that, that they don't matter. Another behavior is withholding. One of the most toxic forms of abuse, it might be a refusal to communicate or a refusal to listen or a refusal to rejoice in one's good ideas, their creativity or their good fortune. Um, The silent treatment is part of withholding. Hmm. Exiting a room or refusing to communicate or it may be a refusal to engage in physical touch or an intimacy other than by their own soul desire. Another one is gaslighting, where the abuser will simply rewrite history 
And that toys with the victim's thoughts. The victim starts to doubt their own memory and they doubt their own perspective and ability to discern what actually just happened or what is happening. Yeah. Those are just a few. Wow. But there's a plethora of covert emotionally abusive behaviors that and definitions that we list on our website. Yeah. Um, and it's downloadable for free in PDF fashion. So I encourage your listeners if they have any questions about this to just yeah, go ahead and absolutely. And if they were triggered by anything that you just said, I would really encourage people to go research that because absolutely. I think when you're in that place where you're feeling like something's wrong with you constantly it may be really this may be a powerful step for you to go and see that you're not alone and that in fact you're not crazy <laughs> and that's what that's what happens is yeah. um, victims often in overt emotional abuse is the victim is more able to discern that something is wrong with their partner but in covert emotional abuse they actually internalize it as something wrong with themselves they think don't I know how to communicate effectively? Yeah. Am I unlovable? A myriad of other things that make it their responsibility. Yeah. Something's not right with them. Right. And then that's where shame and isolation and fear and all those things start to... The enemy just uses that against you, right? So there's the abuse of the abuser, and then you have our spiritual enemy that then spins that and feeds it even more. Absolutely. In your heart, in your mind, in your spirit. So there's another term that you, I think, have coined, right, with the MEND Project, which is double abuse. Yes. Can you define what double abuse is? Well, double abuse is what happens when a victim finally finds the courage to speak up for the first time or speak up at any time or reach out for help. And what so often happens is rather than the victim being believed and supported, as they're trying to tell their story, they're interrupted, they're redirected, mm. they may be interrogated. So oftentimes they're mm. criticized, mm. they're judged, and yeah. they're given incorrect instructions and sometimes even ultimatums. You need to do this or I'm not going to help you do that. Yeah. Um, and when they don't comply, they're often ostracized by either their family, hmm. their yeah. church community, their professional community, think about it. Yeah. When a victim of sexual harassment speaks out in the corporate setting, then that person, that victim is deemed a troublemaker right. and is often ostracized yeah. by the environment. The same thing happens when a victim speaks out in a family yeah. and now they're stirring up trouble and yeah. disparaging the marriage. They're so, not believed or they're accused of that's being, right. telling lies. Or and they're, they're, yeah. yeah, they're just... The worst is assumed rather than to believe the story to be true. And there was a study done on sexual assault. And in 97% of all cases, it was deemed that the victim was telling the truth hmm. in the study. Only 3% lie. And wow. so I would like your listeners to understand that when victims come forward to a family member or to someone in their church or to a therapist, they're not there for any ulterior motives that are there to get help. They yeah. usually want to either get help escaping the situation or they want to find a way through to restore their marriage. Yeah. And so there's not a motivation to lie. The numbers change a little bit once you get involved in the court system because then 
a lot of people lie for different reasons. Yeah. Um, but still, so many victims in court are not believed, and mm-hmm. it's it's an epidemic. Yeah, yeah. The scary thing and the hard thing with the double abuse is I would say that for the most part, the people who are the perpetrators of that are not intending to be abusive, but they're maybe reacting rather than responding. Their own fear, insecurity, their own baggage, their own distorted understanding of life in general has caused them to react in a way that dismisses the victim that's in front of them. And it's whether it's for self-protection, whether it's for protecting someone else, whether it's avoidance and not even wanting, you know, closing the ears. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to get involved, whatever it is. But there's such an awareness of the damage that that can create. There is an unawareness, but I... I try to have people understand that compassion is a defined set of responses. It's not it's not nebulous. It's not subjective. For a victim, it's a very specific and defined set of responses. Yeah. But condemnation teeters ever so close to compassion if you say, well, it's inadvertent or... or um, unintentional. Well, what was their intention then when they disbelieved? What was yeah. their intention when they were critical? It's not compassion. And so yeah. a good internal check is to say, am I being compassionate to this person at this time? Yeah. Or am I seeking to, fought, to trip them up and to see that they maybe made mistakes and so it's not as bad as they think? Yeah. Or to minimize their story in some way? Yeah. It really is the difference between compassion and condemnation. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, yeah, would you share your story? You started the Men Project uh, because of personal experience, so I would love for you to share what you're comfortable sharing and your journey, your journey to healing, your journey to freedom, and um, what God's done in your life. Sure, well... um, I mean, Bucky is sitting next to me. I was the victim of covert emotional abuse. So my husband used to be one that did those confusing, manipulative behaviors that were either really defensive or either offensive to control me and Mm -hmm. to keep me in a downgraded position. Um, And so over time, the way that affected me is that it was so traumatizing and confusing. I didn't understand what it was. I just knew that when I expected empathy, it was a reasonable reasonable expectation. I didn't receive that. I received someone that was more judgmental of my feelings yeah. and didn't accept my individuality and my own persona and my own emotions. Like, yeah. And I don't mean being over-emotional. I mean reasonable emotions. Mm-hmm. And so over time, because it was... I use that word to describe covert emotional abuse that it confuses and confounds them at the same time because the definition of confounding involves the word expectation. When the expectation of what you hope to receive is absolutely not met in any way. It is actually stopped in its Hmm. tracks. It's a shocking experience. And so to be continually shocked Hmm. over a repeated period of time in a multitude of ways 
you know, it was false accusations, minimization, um, blame shifting, defensive tactics, deflections, you know, just so many different behaviors that were taking place. I was so confused and I developed post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. And after years of having PTSD and it affecting me physiologically where I had unexplained autoimmune illnesses and like I developed latent autoimmune diabetes, I couldn't eat normal foods, my body would react with the symptoms of food poisoning. So I was at the hospital multiple times. Like it really started affecting me physically. And that's when I asked for a separation and to stop couples therapy. And it was at that time also that I reached out to the leaders of my Bible study, couples Bible study group that we'd been part of for 14 years. And rather than believe me, the female leader was just very judgmental and critical and telling me how I needed to be a better wife and they were just really offended by the fact that I would separate from my husband they thought I was not being a good Christian even though they knew how ill I was my white blood count was super low a 2.3 which is really dangerous and doctors couldn't figure out why even when I was so frail and in a meekened position, they were not compassionate towards me. They actually gave me ultimatums that if I Mm -hmm. wasn't back in Bible, not Bible study, in couples therapy within 90 days, I would never be invited back to the group. Wow. They told me I was gossiping. I was disparaging my husband and that a Christian wife doesn't do that. Yeah. I didn't realize I was part of a very strong patriarchal culture that didn't allow the woman to have her own perspective and her own individual voice and to not be held solely responsible for the marriage. Like they placed the entire responsibility of the marriage on me. And one reason why it gave double abuse a definition is because of the effect that it has on the victim. It exacerbates their trauma. And so I developed complex post-traumatic stress which is what happens when double abuse occurs. Victims get a sense of hopelessness and despair that there's no way out, there's no way through. And so their response let me feel like I was in a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to get any help. And then they gossiped about me to other people in the community and told them not to talk to me either because we're trying to drive her back into couples therapy. And that ominous feeling that people were judging me and looking at me through a lens that totally mischaracterized me was very traumatic. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot there. And I want to unpack a lot of that, but your husband, Bucky, is sitting right next to you. So first of all, you know, the fact that you're sitting here is a huge testimony to God's healing and, and you guys have both been on a journey, but Bucky, you're sitting here listening to your bride tell her story how do you feel about that? Like, what was your journey through this season? Well, at first, of course, the, the same Bible study group that condemned Annette or blamed Annette was supportive of me. So I thought that was just a normal yeah. a normal person acting normally. Uh, yeah. When I finally had to come face to face with what I'd done and what, what it had done to Annette's health hmm. and her psyche, yeah. I felt terrible. Yeah. But it took a long time for me to come to that come to that place because I didn't I didn't understand it I I didn't uh, think what I was doing was abusive it just didn't, didn't yeah. occur to me yeah what led you to be in the place that that was normal 
Well, uh, probably it's my upbringing. I was raised by a dad that uh, was, was a very nice guy to the outside, but a very self-centered guy. <laughs> and uh, he divorced my mother and then married a woman who absolutely acquiesced to whatever he wanted to do. <laughs> so this was my model of what a marriage should be. And he was, you know, he was loved and respected by a lot of people. He was, yeah. he was revered by the employees of his company. Also, uh, you know, I was, I was the oldest child. Hmm. I was a performer. I got good grades. I was a good athlete. And I was really revered by my parents. Hmm. So I never, I was never corrected. Hmm. Uh, I pretty much taught that I should be, as a lot of men were in those days, uh, to be independent, self-sufficient. Yeah. And so I, w- I just had never experienced adversity in a relationship. My, yeah. my first wife, I, I was married for 30 years, never crossed me either. I, hmm. I was just, I guess I was a strong personality and I, and I was really a bully. Yeah. Wow. So what, what was the turning point? So you had been in couples therapy, so something had made you go into couples therapy and I guess work on your marriage. Apparently that wasn't necessarily working. What was it that finally Bucky got you to recognize that the state that Annette found herself in was largely due to you? Well, I have to back up a little bit because you know, we separated. We were separated for a total of three years. Hmm. Uh, so it was a process. And hmm. Annette during that time did a lot of work. I mean, she really worked on herself. She, you know, she did a lot of reading. A lot of studying on the subject. In the meantime, I was I was miserable, but I had a company to run, and so I, I did yeah. that. And but Annette's perseverance, she stuck with it. She she stuck with me. I mean, she hmm. didn't leave the she didn't leave the relationship other than our separation. Yeah. And she finally found a, a therapist uh, in the Seattle area uh, by the name of uh, Dr. David Hawkins, and he was the one that. And his approach was different in that he was willing to confront me. Hmm. No therapist had ever confronted me before. Because wow. I just listened, and, and I, I'm not sure what the technique is, but it wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> and at any rate, but it took two years with Dr. Hawkins. So I, I was in my 70s, very hard-headed, wow. convinced that, that the very worst the problem with the relationship is a 50-50 deal. So it took, I don't know how many trips up there, but four or five over time, and a lot of conversation on the phone. Wow. And Dr. Hawkins finally, it finally, finally set in with me that, that I was the abuser and that I had caused my wife a lot of pain and ruined mm. her health, and yet she hung in there. So it was, felt very, very guilty, felt terrible. Yeah, yeah. That would be a pretty significant thing to face when you finally, yeah. you're finally there. I want to go back a little bit to the um, the Bible study days. So, Bucky, at that time, you were just kind of going along with life, thinking everything's fine. What's the problem, right? And your Annette has opened up to your Bible study group, and she's getting shut down, and she's separating and stuff. So, what was happening? on your side of that with your Bible study group and the things that were being said and all of that? Well, the, I had two groups. The one was the couples group, which 
we quit participating with them, but there was a men's group, which are a lot of the same people, hmm. men, and I continued on with that group for a while. And uh, they just they just supported me and prayed for our relationship. They they weren't I don't I can't remember that they were really overtly condemning of that. They just were supporting me and supporting the relationship. So I, I remember it a little bit differently. Yeah. <laughs> well, <it could> be. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's that's good. What, what do you remember? I I remember Bucky telling me that they said I was controlling. Mm. And that it takes two people yeah. to make a marriage work or to make a marriage not work. And just those subtle statements yeah. place blame on me. Or in abusive situations, no problems can be solved until the abuse is taken away. And usually when the abuse is resolved and it is not, and I don't mean just a simple apology, I mean... It has been resolved with tangible evidence of change over time. Yeah. When that happens, then the other problems fall away because now you're dealing with two empathic people. Yeah. But what often happens is just saying, well, it takes two people to make a marriage work means right. that I'm responsible for yeah. something that I could not change. Yeah. It didn't matter if I was very vulnerable with him or very firm with my boundaries nothing worked yeah because I couldn't change him he had to change himself yeah and I also if you have pastors in your audience I don't I don't want our story to imply that a victim should wait because the victim's level of trauma their resiliency what they're capable of needs to be the number one priority for me I stepped away from the marriage and I worked on understanding abuse and understanding why I allowed it in my life and what I could have done different and why I didn't see it and what I would look for differently in a next relationship if that ever came I wasn't ready to file for divorce because I didn't want all of that extra stress I was so weakened I did hmm. I tried to get myself to the point of being emotionally healed enough to be able to tackle what the next chapter would look like yeah. and so I went to my husband and said I am ready either to file for divorce now after two years or a year to either file for divorce or I have found this gentleman who's an expert in Hmm. abuse and trauma. He's out of state, but if you would be willing to participate in his intensives, I'd be willing to give you the time to work through that if you were, if you really worked the program. Yeah. So that's that's how it happened. That's a big deal. Um, There's so much here that I want to go back a little bit. You, you were seeing a couple therapists. Mm what was or wasn't working in that scenario? Because I think it's really interesting for probably in like the early 90s, um, even into the 2000s, faith, Christianity, and psychology were were two very, you know, they kind of were kept in different corners. And I was raised in a denomination in the Calvary world, which was like psychiatrists and all that that's just terrible it's evil it's pop psychology it's all Mm -hmm. self-centered so the whole idea of counseling or therapy was not accepted and there were reasons for that but it was taken probably a little too far so we're in a season you know now where there's become more awareness and the church is getting a little bit more understanding but even in that therapy isn't 
you know, there's different therapists, there's different mm-hmm. styles, there's different Absolutely. experience with mm-hmm. the different different types of things. It isn't necessarily a one size fits all. Just like healing, I, and I appreciate you said that. Like, it's not like every marriage that has an abusive or covert abusive situation, you know, follow the steps that Annette and Bucky did, mm-hmm. and you'll be fine. You know, every situation is different. Every because you're bringing two families of origin together, you're colliding your experiences with faith. So there is no one size fits all. But um, with therapy, can you share that journey a little bit? Because I think some people do, like they'll go to a therapist and it doesn't work and they just give up or they think that one therapist is the end all be all. And if you know they don't resonate with or they can't get help through there, then they just walk away. It's kind of funny and in our case, we had the financial resources to afford therapy, and I can honestly tell you there was never a time in our marriage where we weren't in therapy. Mm-hmm. So we, <laughs> we had a lot of conflict and were trying to, um, or, or I was feeling distressed, and we were trying to get to the bottom of it. But what I've learned in my research after interviewing hundreds of victims, hundreds of therapists, and hundreds of pastors is that therapists don't receive training in their academic studies on domestic violence and abuse. Hmm. It's something like 12 to 15 hours of abuse training in their entire academic studies. That's crazy. Isn't it? And they get to choose what topic to study on, whether it's sex trafficking or child molestation or whatever it is. And so most therapists don't even know that emotional abuse is a form of domestic violence, let alone be able to identify the covert kinds of emotional abuse that I was experiencing. You know, Bucky never called me a name. He didn't scream and yell or rage at me or any of those things. It was more defensive tactics, and I felt punished. Like he would, you know, withhold speaking to me and Hmm. the silent treatment and a lot of crazy making, passive aggressive behaviors, things like that. And so as those things would play out in a therapeutic session, they weren't catching on to them. And I was there waving my hand saying, this is the same dynamic that we experienced last week. And you're not seeing the pattern. You're asking me details about the minutia and the minutia doesn't matter. Next week, it'll be a different minutia. What matters is this pattern of these certain behaviors that kept playing out and they weren't equipped to identify them. And we went to Christian counselors and we went to Christian counselors who had published many books who we felt were very reputable. And trust me, I mean, one of them was $700 an hour. It was ridiculous. And after three years getting nowhere, Hmm. I was utterly spent and so traumatized from those sessions because they weren't identifying what I was starting to see more and more. Of, I was gaining more and more clarity the longer that I was in the relationship. And I didn't have the words that I have now after studying it for seven years. But yeah. at the time, I think I did a reasonable job explaining the dynamics of what I was going through. I even recently went through and looked at some of my old emails. I was looking for content and something I was writing and I was astounded at how articulate I really was and yet they didn't get it. So it was really harmful and it wore us down and it just was more damaging than it was helpful. Yeah. um, I didn't get it either because I just, I felt supported more than anything else. 
I, I, was, I didn't understand it any more than the therapist did. Hmm. Yeah, I think I was more judged in therapy for being frustrated. They would say, you seem really angry. Well, yes, I was getting really angry. Doesn't mean that I was screaming and yelling or anything like that, but it's like I wasn't even allowed to express my emotions. And so I felt criticized and Bucky was supported, or they would say things to me that weren't particularly helpful, like, well, he's never cherished you. Okay, I realize that he's never cherished me, but are you telling me he's going to cherish me? <laughs> or, you know, like, is there any hope for this? Or, But it was just an empty statement that didn't give me any idea of what... Right. That's just not particularly helpful. I needed to be told that what I was dealing with was a form of domestic violence so that I could have yeah. sought the help that I needed from a domestic violence agency to teach me how to become empowered and then I would have known better and Bucky would have known better the specific type of help that he would need to change his faulty thinking. Yeah, yeah. So what what was that? Because I would think that when you have kind of lived your life and you were married for 30 years and there wasn't a problem and then you're married now and well obviously there was a problem because the marriage ended the marriage but, well but, that's but it, true but there yeah. weren't but there there, there wasn't uh, we didn't have uh, disputes yeah. well, I, I need to backtrack just a little bit because my family the way I was raised there were no disputes in our family hmm. everything was you know the women were considered to be emotional and, and guys mm-hmm. men just tuned them out yeah. And so I never had to deal with conflict. I never knew, I never really knew what it was. Hmm. I mean, I guess I knew what it was theoretical, but I, theoretically, but I didn't know, I certainly didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. So my actions, as Annette, I think, described them as largely defensive, I was making it up as I went along because yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a healthy response to dispute resolution. I didn't even know what it was. Yeah. What would you say about just your need to control? Because I think that's... Mm-hmm. Without realizing it, I was quite controlling. I mean, I, yeah. I, I really wanted to control my environment. And so anything that, anything that threatened that, it, once it got to a point, my anxiety level would raise because I wasn't used to being in that situation. Yeah. So when my anxiety level would go up, I would say things I didn't remember saying. Remember, I would just say anything out of, out of a defensive posture yeah that's so common is that there's such an intense need to control everything in the relationship yeah that it manifests in ways that powers over and oppresses the person that they're with but there's also the internal stuff that's going on and for him it was anxiety it was entitlement too because he felt I don't want to speak for him but he's already shared that he felt that women, you just push their voice aside. Yeah. But there is the dynamic that's going on internally. Absolutely. Well, at the loss of control is what I was going to say. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that it seems like, you know, you're in this relationship and clearly something's going on and there's conflict and you're trying to do what was modeled and you're used to doing and that's just like disregard and ignore and that's not working and so you, and you can't control what's happening over here. So the anxiety is, is building and building and building. And that's coming out in 
all sorts of passive aggressive ways from silent treatment. When we're talking about silent treatment, we're not talking about being quiet for 30 minutes. We're no. talking about prolonged, like sometimes weeks at a time. Yeah. Like the, this is, I just want to be clear that what we're talking about isn't just, oh, mm-hmm. Annette is just needing too much and Bucky was mm-hmm. reasonable. Like there, there was some stuff that was deep and wide. Like I was probably trying anything and everything that might work. All unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that might work to gain control back. Exactly. Right. Sure. Yeah. So, Annette, what did that do to you in your relationship with the Lord? Like, you mustered up the courage to share with the people I think you felt that you could trust, the place that you thought would be safe. And I'm, please hear me, this isn't an accusation. I'm not, we're not here to point fingers and speak poorly, but I think this speaks to something that happens often when people don't know how to respond or what to say and their presumption of how Christians should behave or act supersedes empathy and compassion and what it means to actually love people well Mm -hmm. and what healthy relationship is. So what did that do to you when you finally got the courage to speak and then you were either questioned, accused, not believed, ostracized, given ultimatums. Like, what did that do to you? Because clearly you already had so much stress, but what does that even do to your faith, to your relationship with Jesus? It's a great question. I mean, it was earth-shattering for me at the time because, like I said, they reached out into the broader community and spoke to others, too, and slandered me. And so I just felt completely overwhelmed by the response and devastated Mm -hmm. and so disappointed because I wasn't asking very much. All I was asking was to please encourage my husband to have an accountability partner and I will do anything if he will do that one thing because I need transparency in our couples therapy was what I was asking because I knew it wasn't working. So it just traumatized me. Like I said, it exacerbated my trauma so it was almost unmanageable it was extremely overwhelming to have complex post-traumatic stress you can there's a great wikipedia page on it that's actually written by an md and so Mm. anybody can look it up but in terms of my faith i turned off the news i turned off the radio i only listened to sermons i watched tbn and sermons (laughs) on the television all day long and read my Bible and just got on my knees and yeah. really strengthened my faith. And I, I felt alone in the outside world. I had a, two or three friends that really stood with me, which thank God for them. Yeah. Um, it was just letting the Lord speak into me. And yeah. I knew that I was doing the right thing because before I asked for a separation, I prayed fervently one morning and I just said, I'm so confused, please give me a sign. And within 15 minutes, there was a double, a huge double rainbow outside this window right here. No. And I just knew that I was doing the right thing. Yeah. I just didn't feel confident because it's so confusing. You know, the church puts the institution of marriage yeah. above the well-being of the victim and children inside a marriage. And I felt like I was sinning by yeah. separating. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because there's such a distortion in uh, the understanding of marriage and the role of Uh, what partnership actually is in marriage and what God really intended it to be. And the submission model, which is greatly 
promoted and honestly distorted has really been the catalyst to a lot of abuse and to a lot on, on the, the lighter side, maybe women just disregarding maybe the call of their life or the things that they're passionate about for the sake of just being pulled behind the speed bump, uh, speedboat, excuse me, of their husband's will and whim. But it can go all the way to to abuse. Mm-hmm. And I had a dear friend get married to a pastor who was very beloved. And, you know, their wedding night, it started unraveling before it began because he had a horrific porn addiction that led to so many other things. And mm-hmm. it was horrible. And there was so much more shock that, well, well, no, it can't be this person. And, you know, we'll, we'll surround him and help him. But the amount of help that she got was little to none. The amount of shame that she experienced was horrible. Recently, I met a woman whose daughter was a uh, uh, raised in the church that they all went to, met a boy in the youth group. They grew up together, got married, started having problems in their marriage. There was some abusive things happening in their marriage. They went to the pastor for counseling. The pastor meets with them once, decides the guy's fine and says that the girl needs to meet with the pastor one-on-one for counseling. And the counseling was, you're not having sex enough. You're not pleasing your husband. If you were, this wouldn't be happening. And she subjected herself to that for a long time until her parents finally found out and confronted the pastor Mm -hmm. and then the whole family was ostracized from the church so the the young man who again it's not vilifying the guy because what's manifesting is the brokenness in his life so it's not helping him to surround him and support him and avoid the brokenness and the the unhealth and all of the the bad behavior right it's perpetuating it so this isn't just I just want my listeners to know this isn't an isolated incident. It's an epidemic, really, in the church on many levels. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to have you on is because I think the amount of Christian marriages that are in crisis, that are um, covertly in crisis, the amount of Christian marriages that are settling for so much less than what God intended that relationship to be is alarming and the church is ill-equipped it's ill-equipped to recognize it it's ill-equipped to care for those marriages either party either the abuser or the victim we're just ill-equipped so a big mission of the men project is to equip organizations and churches Mm -hmm. to know how to respond and so do you want to speak a little bit about that and how you do that sure we are just coming out with our comprehensive curriculum. It's a seven-session curriculum, and it's basically how to respond to abuse if you're a first responder or a church leader or a therapist. And in that, and even available now on our website, you can see what we call the healing model of compassion, which is a simple guideline. It's a very simple tool for how to interface with a victim, what to do and what not to do and what not to say. It's very simple. We also have our accountability model of courage. It takes courage for us to step out of ourselves and confront abuse, but that's what we actually need to do. And, you know, Bucky said it in his story, he wasn't confronted. Right. And so it wasn't until he was confronted that he started changing and the best abuse books out there say that more than judges, lawyers, and police officers, it's families, friends, 
and clergy who have the biggest ability to influence an abuser's mindset wow. because they have a faulty belief system. Yeah. They have entitlement. They have faulty thinking. And so it's not their feelings that are coming into play. It's their thinking. Yeah. And that needs to be unpacked and confronted by people who are willing to come alongside them and say the way that you are responding or the way you are treating your spouse is not right and be willing to walk through the steps of what it is like to be an accountability partner in a healthy way. Yeah, yeah. So Bucky, how once you were confronted and you started to recognize and see, how then did you change? How do you behave differently now? How were you able to change your mindset? And then how did that play out? Well, I think uh, one thing I do remember that uh, Dr. Hawkins convinced me of was that feelings are are valid. Everybody has feelings and they are all valid. Yeah. I was judging Annette's feelings. Yeah. He said everybody responds differently to whatever's happening around them. And those feelings, uh, those responses are natural. They're honest. They're valid. Yeah. They're to be believed mm. and that's respected. Good. Yeah, it's good. And that's where it started. I could see that that allowed me to see Annette as an equal <laughs> more than I had seen her in the past that way. That's a big deal. And I think that, again, the church perpetuates that faulty mindset that emotions are not good. And when we were not recording earlier, Bucky, you brought up something that I think is really true as well. In addition to the the submission model being a very uh, can be very distorted and used to really create a lot of um, unhealth and dysfunction in marriages, but also the church's view on divorce. Divorce kind of has become the ultimate sin, um, which is ridiculous because there is no sin scale. There is no, oh, this is a this is an okay sin, but this is a bad sin. Exactly. <laughs> you know, sin is sin. Mm-hmm. And there is grace. You know, we all fall short and we all stumble and we all make mistakes, but there's redemption in that. There's redemption in the things that happen. And when the fear of divorce and kind of the outward appearance not being disrupted Oftentimes, the health and the well-being of the people in marriage is sacrificed for the sake of the appearance of not having the divorce. And I so love that you're re-emphasizing that because I cannot overstate how critical it is that we give victims the absolute choice to choose the path that is right for them. Yeah. Because whether they decide to stay, we don't know all that's at stake. Whether they decide to leave, we don't know all that's at stake there either. And in our case, it took Bucky, by his own acknowledgement, two years with Dr. Hawkins to change his thinking. If he hadn't been fully supporting me financially, you know, if I had to have the stressors in the midst of complex post-traumatic stress of having to get a job of having to deal with a divorce or having to deal with retaliation. We had a lot of setbacks. The average victim, they're not going to be able to tolerate that kind of recurring trauma to go through that. And I think it's, I just want to caution people to not place that expectation. It has to be an individual choice. Yeah. 
one of the things that I think was evidenced by your experience with the Bible study is it's easy for people on the outside to make a judgment call and decide what truth is. And that's a really dangerous place to be and a dangerous thing to presume that you know what is real and what is true. But what are some things that people can recognize that they can kind of go past their judgments but actually look to the behavior and the things that are manifesting that are actual huge red flags? That's a great question. Okay, so on the victim side, to help you identify a victim, whether it's a victim of domestic violence, emotional abuse, physical abuse, or a child who's being bullied at school, you're going to see the signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. And those signs will manifest in things like the fight, flight, freeze, and appease symptoms where they're either going to blurt out and be really angry or they might be absolutely terrified and in tears. And you think, why are they so terrified about what they're telling me? But it's because it's an accumulation of traumatic events that literally they cannot tolerate more so the anticipation terrorizes them yeah and you're you'll see these signs and we need to take those signs as tangible evidence that this is not just them looking unstable which yeah, is what so often people on. do yeah this means something real is happening that yeah. is causing this this is now a disorder it is now it's um symptoms of something much deeper that i'm don't necessarily have a full grasp on, but you can't ignore those symptoms. We have to take them in and take them seriously. And then on the abuser side, one of the best ways to know who's telling the truth or who isn't or who's the abuser is the abuser is usually really calm and they don't show a lot of emotion Hmm. there. And so there's almost like a detachment between what you would expect their emotion to be. It's almost like their affect is off or they might just be blaming 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 and criticizing their spouse but there's one question that you can ask an abuser and they won't be able to answer it and that is tell me how you think your spouse is feeling right now oh interesting because they don't have the empathy they're going to immediately go into their own complaints they won't be able to answer that so those are two clues that on each side of the equation that I think can be really helpful. No, that's good. So then if somebody is in a situation where they're in relationship with someone and they're picking up on some of those red flags, what do you do? What's the next step? The next step is to go to our website and make sure that you're interfacing with them in a way that is not going to add trauma or is not going to breach the confidentiality of the victim because It could put them in a dangerous situation, and the victim knows best as to the level of danger that would be involved. And then download our tools and definitions. Download our definitions to give to the victim to say, gosh, some of what you're describing sounds like some of these things. Why don't you read this list and see if there are more behaviors that you're experiencing. Help them gain clarity. Refer them to resources. If you think there's abuse, there are wonderful classes at domestic violence agencies like personal empowerment programs for victims and there are batterers prevention programs for abusers but I think the church needs to step up and get trained in this and get involved because really want to intercede 
and minimize divorces. They really need to know how to come alongside, particularly men. It's not always men. It doesn't discriminate, but predominantly men, particularly in the church because of patriarchy. They need to get involved and get trained on how to interface with them properly. Yeah. It's for healthy marriages. It's for healing and wholeness. Mm -hmm. It's for... You know, we were made for relationship first with Jesus and then with each other. We talked about this before we started recording. And what does healthy intimacy look like, whether it's with God or your best friend or your spouse? And the church should be the place that is building up and equipping us to have healthy relationship. But it actually has kind of fallen short in that. And so we're not talking about a a witch hunt. We're not talking about going and, you know, scrutinizing every person and every relationship, but we're talking about being prepared and being equipped, being discerning. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And to talk about it from the pulpit. Yeah. People don't know what they don't know. And so if a pastor were to actually speak about what defines domestic violence. Yeah. The emotional and the physical and the financial and, you know, all of the aspects that go into that yeah. power and control wheel. Yeah. That would really help so many marriages, so many victims. It would help because a lot of people behave these ways out of bad habits that they've gathered along the way. And when they're brought to their attention and they realize that that behavior is actually considered abusive like I used to minimize my children I didn't Mm -hmm. know I was abusing them by minimizing them I would yeah I thought it was more important to teach them empathy and to minimize their own feelings which was a big mistake yeah and so once I realized I was making a mistake I mean immediately I stopped and I went overboard apologizing to them, trying to tell them, don't listen to those things I said to you. (laughs) This is what I should have been saying to you. I mean, a healthy person is going to want to change out of a wellspring inside themselves on their own. I might add something in in the church, I think. People have a facade that they want to... Yeah, that's good. It's true. they want to maintain. Mm -hmm. They're so afraid to be judged by other Christians. Yeah. I mean, pastors on down. Yep. And so I think to break the ice, you know, if pastor could could preach from the pulpit that it's okay to, to not be okay. Yeah. No, that's so huge. That's a I think that is is the primary epidemic, right? Because if the enemy can convince us to isolate and, and it, he does it all the time. You walk into church and, you know, shame and all the stuff starts pointing a finger at you and oh you know, if they just knew what your marriage was like or what you were thinking or what you did this morning and, you know, and that insidious tape that keeps going on that causes more and more isolation and more and more trying to prove that you're something that you're not, yeah, trying to put compared, compared, comparison. And it, yeah. and it rears its ugly head and it takes people out constantly. Suicide. I know a, a young lady whose husband was a worship pastor and he killed himself. He was battling with depression and nobody knew and he didn't feel like he could say anything because mm-hmm. of his role. Right? How how ironic, you know, that yeah. the people that are supposed to care for a congregation can't care for themselves because there's no permission to, yeah. right? So church should be the safe place. 